COVID-19 is not only a new disease caused by a new virus, it is an inflection point in our understanding about ourselves and the planet we inhabit. Those words were written by Richard Horton in the preface to the new edition of his book, The COVID-19 Catastrophe, What's Gone Wrong and How to Stop It Happening Again. After being the editor of the world's leading medical journal, The Lancet, for 25 years, last year he became one of the go-to voices as COVID-19 swept much of the world. Richard Horton, welcome to Downstream. Great to be here, Aaron. Thank you. I'll start with a, a big question uh, because I think, you know, all we've talked about is COVID-19 for the last 11 months. Mm. Almost a year in, has the response of the UK to COVID-19 been among the worst in the world? You know, you're a scientist, we've got lots of data. Where do you stand on that question? Yes, I think we're, um, I think the, the worst country response in the world, just for its sheer recklessness, was the United States under Donald Trump. But we come a close second. And we've seen that not just in terms of the number of deaths, but the sheer ineptitude of the management of the pandemic across pretty much all aspects of the state. It's the biggest state failure um, since Suez. And it's one of the most significant science policy failures that I can remember in my lifetime. And why do you think the UK is second? Because, you know, people are looking at, for instance, yes, the, the death figures are terrible, but high vaccination rates... Um, there are some countries which are as bad as us in terms of deaths per capita and so on. So why do you put, put the UK second? Yes, it's a great story about vaccination, um, but we mustn't let the vaccine rollout obscure the past 12 months. Um, it is partly measured in terms of mortality, but it's also the way we responded at every step of, of our management of the pandemic. We didn't learn the lessons. Um, we didn't learn the lessons that we needed to squeeze the virus out of our communities at every single step. We actually um, said, Jenny Harris, Deputy Chief Medical Officer, said in the early stages of the pandemic that we were an international exemplar in terms of our preparedness. Well, look how ridiculous that was. Uh, our government advisors said that we didn't need a testing regime. Um, the wrong advice, completely. At every single step, we have taken the wrong turn, made the wrong decision, and failed to learn the lessons from it. So that is why we have, unfortunately, been second to the United States in terms of our crass ineptitude. And why do you think that's been the case? You talk in the book about um, Operation Cygnus, I believe it's called, 2016. People modelled uh, this huge wave of influenza that could kill large numbers of people, have a major impact on the economy, society. So clearly... It was in the background for public policy officials. There was, of course, the SARS outbreak in 2003. It wasn't just that we weren't prepared. There was almost hubris that we were, like you say, amongst the best prepared in the world, even as you know, the WHO was declaring this thing a pandemic towards the end of January. Where does that come from? You know, I, I know a lot of our audience will have their own sort of instinctive feelings about that, British exceptionalism or whatever. But British science is generally highly respected around the world. Were you surprised at the response from, you know, the, the political slash scientific community, i.e. chief scientific advisors and so on? Well, this is one of the aspects which uh, uh, does puzzle me. And it's easy to blame the politicians and they should be held accountable. There should be a reckoning. Um, and we can talk about that. But I'm also, I'm also very concerned about the scientific medical response uh, we published five papers in the very last week of January, 
So that's, you know, a long time ago, right at the origin point, pretty much, of the pandemic, which described the nature of this disease that we now call COVID-19, a brand new disease that caused multi-organ failure, filling up intensive care units in China, high rates of death, no treatment. Um, We reported that it was person-to-person transmission. Uh, and we published a paper from uh, University of Hong Kong that actually predicted that because it started in Wuhan, this was going to become a global pandemic. Now, this was this was all in January. Why didn't government advisors read those papers combined with WHO's public health emergency of international concern that was declared on January the 30th and do something? Why didn't they use the month of February to prepare, building up stocks of PPE, building a testing program, building intensive care unit capacity. None of that was done. And when at the beginning of March, it did become crystal clear that what was taking place in Italy was inevitably going to come to our shores. And Neil Ferguson presented the data by March the 5th on, on how significant this pandemic was growing. What did we do? We still waited another three weeks before the first lockdown. So at every single stage, the science failed the government and the government failed the public. Do you think Brexit was a factor? The fact that obviously we're going through this huge constitutional shift, you know, simultaneously. You know, we we know that, for instance, the first UK case, I don't know if it's changed since then, but it was towards the end of January. Of course, we left uh, the European Union on the 31st of January. You talk also in the book about effectively a kind of cognitive bias uh, that we have in this in, in, in Europe and North America. People, for some reason, a kind of bandwagoning bias, thought that any pandemic would look like the flu, whereas in East Asia, because of SARS, yeah. the, the bandwagoning bias, in this instance, a good one, was something like COVID-19. <laughs> so are there kind of more structural explanations or, or, or do you think actually... Specific individuals made very bad decisions at the worst possible time, and that's why we are uh, why we are where we are. Well, you draw several important strands together there. I mean, there was certainly a cognitive bias that the next pandemic, which is number one in the National Risk Register, was going to be influenza, um, and of course, influenza has has a tenth of the mortality of COVID nineteen. We have it every year. The Deaths from influenza range from around 5,000 excess deaths to 20 or 30,000 every year. It's something that we've become accustomed to. Our health service can cope with it. Um, We didn't plan on there being a SARS-like outbreak. uh, And that was a huge, huge mistake. Um, And again, inexcusable because the genetic sequence uh, of this virus was published in January Um, It was released by the government of China to the world, and we could see from that genetic sequence that this was a coronavirus. It was was a SARS virus. So there was no excuse for not knowing that this was uh, a virus very similar to the one we had 20 years ago. So there were those strange cognitive biases, yes, um, but there also was individual failure. you mentioned Brexit. Um, I don't want to blame everything on Brexit, but the fact is that this government was elected on a prospectus of Brexit and that there were going to be these sunny uplands to look forward to. On January the 30th, um, 
the very day when the public health emergency of international concern was declared by WHO, Boris Johnson, the day before we exited the European Union, gave a speech talking about um, the prospects for Britain once we'd left the European Union. He didn't mention the pandemic uh, once. He didn't mention uh, the risks that we faced. And I think he was um, the, the kindest that one can say is that he was distracted. Uh, I think a more honest um, judgment would be that he completely took his eye off the ball and didn't ask the questions he should have asked about what was taking place in China. Um, so it's a combination of long-range uh, failure um, combined with short-term misjudgment. And why wasn't Britain prepared for a SARS-like virus? Because, of course, we, we've had two of these coronaviruses in the 21st century. There's been others too, but two particularly dangerous ones. There was SARS and there's been MERS. MERS went to the Arabian yeah. Peninsula. So we, we know these things could travel pretty far and they can get pretty dangerous if unchecked. Was there no real planning at the, at the, at the highest levels of government in this country and in the rest of the European Union in the United States for a SARS-like pandemic occurring? Because you've said the cognitive bias was influenced. That's understandable. But surely in terms of mapping risk, people have to think the unthinkable as well. Well, yes. If you go back and look at all the documents that came out, there were endless reviews of the SARS outbreak in 2002, 2003. And we dodged a bullet then, um, to be very honest. Uh, it started in 2002, late 2002, but by the summer of 2003, it pretty much burnt itself out. And that particular virus has never returned. It was celebrated as a great triumph of Western science that we'd been able to defeat this epidemic before it overtook the world. Well, clearly that wasn't the case. Um, we were lucky. But when you read those reports reviewing that event, it was, it was also very clear that the recommendation was to prepare for the next SARS-like virus. Now, what, what's been taking place over the last 40 years is an increase in the incidence of, of these uh, what are called spillover infections, zoonotic infections, where a virus jumps from an animal to a human. And that's because of the environmental damage that a human species is causing. We're mixing animals and humans in unusual ways, and that's creating the conditions for viruses to jump. The number of those spillover infections has been increasing over recent decades. We knew this was going to happen at some point. And it was a question of preparing for that. Infectious disease experts have been saying it's going to happen. People like Tony Fauci um, in the US have been predicting this, but we didn't prepare for it. Um, it's, it's somewhat ironic today that we have people like Jeremy Hunt, who've become the great wise sage of, uh, of, of the epidemic, asking penetrating questions on the select committee, on the media a great deal. He was Minister of Health when we should have been preparing for this. He was the minister in the Department of Health when exercise sickness took place. What was he doing? Where was our chief medical officer then? This is, this is why I say there's a political failure, but there's also a science failure as well, because the two should have been connected and they weren't. Turning to China, um, it's been a kind of favoured candidate for, for people seeking to shift blame to people who aren't domestic politicians, whatever the country, including the UK, but of course, there's the United States as well. 
Tom Tugendhat, who's a Conservative MP, said on the 13th of April that the Chinese Communist Party had deliberately lied about COVID-19. That's a huge claim from a British parliamentarian. Was that true? Did China deliberately lie about aspects of COVID-19 to uh, other uh, members of the international community or to the WHO? I don't believe that the Chinese government in Beijing deliberately lied to the international community, no. Um, In fact, every piece of evidence that I've seen um, tells me that Chinese uh, doctors and scientists communicated rapidly with Beijing. And when Beijing realized they had a crisis on their hands, um, they authorized publication of information about the virus um, uh, at the very end of December. that doesn't that's not to say that in Wuhan when the outbreak first took place we know that local officials in the police and local government took steps that were completely designed to suppress discussion about the outbreak um and 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 clearly that was wrong but that's very different that's very different from saying that the government deliberate tried to deliberately mislead the international community Chi- the chinese government learnt lessons from the way it handled the sars outbreak 20 years ago where it did try to deceive the international community it explicitly lied to the international community and it was only when the who called them out on that that they had to capitulate and admit the crisis that was taking place so that lesson was one that was very important. They, would, they promised themselves that they would never be humiliated on the international stage again. And so they actually have moved very quickly on this occasion to release information about the virus, about the disease, about the genetic sequence in those early weeks of January. So I think it's completely unfair of Tom Tugendhat to blame China in the way that he, he does. I believe that the, the, the entire genome was sequenced and, and available to scientists around the world from mid-January, was it? Yes, early, I think it was January the 12th. Right. I mean, that's a level of transparency that, I mean, it was technically impossible at the, uh, in the early 21st century. Yes. Why, do you think, why, why do you think politicians are keen to, to allay blame like that? Um, I think that it's very easy to blame another country to deflect responsibility from your own government. I think there's also a xenophobia, a racism against China, um, which is pretty disgusting to see. I would actually say, go much further and say that we owe a debt of gratitude to China for the way that it has handled the this outbreak. We we absolutely owe a debt of gratitude to the uh, doctors and nurses and scientists who were on the front lines managing this outbreak in the first in the first place. Um, they gathered the information. I mean, remember, um, the, they wrote up these papers that we published in this last week of January. These were Chinese authors from another country writing in a foreign language, publishing in a medical journal uh, thousands of miles away. Um, that was an act of, of, of full disclosure about what was taking place in their country um, and risked actually 
humiliating them, putting them under the international spotlight. But they did it because they knew they had a duty to the rest of the world to tell the story of what was taking place there, to warn the world about what was happening. And in fact, if you read those papers um, now, you can see that the entire story of what's happened in the West over the past 12 months is described in those papers. It's just that we didn't read them. We didn't pay attention to them. So it's our failure, not their failure. Of course, that, that sort of catchphrase you're hearing from the American alt-right, China lied, people died. And you think, well, Taiwan's had eight people die. Mm. Thailand's had 77 people die. Know. You know, were they telling them the truth, but not the rest of the world? I think it's a very strange thing to say personally. Well, isn't there, isn't, isn't there an irony here that um, now the international exemplar in terms of the way the uh, the pandemic was handled and the economic recovery is actually China. Um, the Chinese economy is about the only one that's bounced back um, very, very quickly. And what that shows actually is that this alleged trade-off between health and the economy is completely wrong. Actually, saving lives, protecting health, delivers you economic success. It's, and, and this libertarian argument that we're currently seeing, that somehow that we're, we're, by, by focusing on health, we're destroying the economy, and our primary motive should be to protect civil liberties, protect the economy, and that means accepting a certain level of death in our... I mean, this is completely wrong. Every piece of evidence from East Asian countries shows that actually focusing on suppressing the community transmission, protecting health, delivers you economic gains. Obviously, you know, you're, you're a scientist, you like dissenting views, you think it's important to have freedom of expression, etc. But how do you feel about the sort of, the, the, there's COVID denial, and then there's people that are actively trying to, you know, build a mass platform within public life and in the media on it. I mean, where do they sit in this? Do you sort of think they're allowed their views, but I disagree with them, we have to sort of win the debate? Or do you think actually these people are actively dangerous? The extent to which they've been amplified by the media is hugely problematic. No, I'm, I'm actually very comfortable with people expressing dissenting views, um, as long as we hold them accountable for those views. Uh, and, and actually, you can see how little traction they've gained. I mean, if you look at vaccine co- Vaccine confidence is a very sensitive measure of what the public thinks. Uh, and, and you can see that actually there's enormous confidence in um, the availability and use of vaccines. So these, you know, the 5G mask theories um, that we've seen, the, anti, the anti-mask campaigns that the Mail on Sunday has been waging, um, all, of, all of this denialism which we've seen over the years, we saw it with HIV, Um, all of this denialism has had actually very little impact on public confidence, on public um, trust in the science. So I think it's good to let people uh, air their dissenting views. The public's not stupid. They recognise that that most of it is complete nonsense. So when you've got Labour, quick answer, but so when you've got Labour or any political party saying actually we should actively shut down these views online, stop fake news. Do you actually think that's not potentially the best way to go about things? No. I mean, remember, I'm old enough um, to have been there with the whole MMR story. And the less, one of the lessons of MMR was the more you try and suppress voices, the more public, the public raised questions and become suspicious. 
So it's better to let light in. It's better to let people say what they want to say and then hold them accountable for that, um, not to suppress. Sort of fanning out a bit, a question that I'm sure many people watching or listening to this will uh, be keen to know the answer to. When do we go back to normal? Uh, when, when can I go on my summer holidays? You know, if I want to go to Italy or France, yeah. not Cornwall, when, when is that going to be viable? Yeah, it's going to be a while yet. Um, so here's my, here's my thinking about the timeline. Um, right now, we are the, the lockdown that we're currently going through is reducing new cases, new hospitalizations, and slowly now deaths. Um, if we follow the same pattern as we did last year, then I think we could be out of this lockdown by just after Easter, say mid-April. Um, the difference between now and last year is that we have these variants, which are more transmissible. So that's bad. We're in winter. Um, so we are in at-risk situations because we're indoors. That's bad. But we have a vaccine and that's good. Um, so these forces, it's very hard to predict how these positive and negative forces are going to play out. But I think by um, mid-April, we could be coming out of this current lockdown. But we're still not going to be protected then. There's still a very large number of people who've not been infected. Um, therefore, they're susceptible. Although we have eight or nine million people who've had the first dose of the vaccine, they're not fully protected yet. And it's going to take us at least to the summer um, to get through all of those who are at risk and more to get as close to this famous phrase, herd immunity. Um, even when Britain, let's say everything goes well, even when Britain is fully immunized and we've got herd immunity and everything's great, we're going out to restaurants and bars and cinema as before, we can't go abroad because there's no way Europe's going to be vaccinated in uh, anytime soon. So our borders are then really important to control because once we are protected, the big risk then is allowing virus in through uh, poor border controls. So this is where I'm afraid the unit of success in vaccination is not the UK, it's the world. And this is where I find this whole debate over the past week or so around we're beating the European Union. You know, those European countries are useless. It's so good we exited the European Union. This is not something to be pleased about. Um, what we should be doing is saying, how can we help our European neighbours to be more successful with their vaccine programs and not even our European neighbors. How do we help all countries of the world be successful? It's in our interests. It's not just that it's, I'm not playing the moral card here. It's totally in our interests that the rest of the world gets vaccinated because we certainly aren't going to be able to go on holiday anytime soon unless they are. So you think no summer holidays to Europe this year? No, at, at this point? I'm not booking a summer holiday to Europe this year. Um, looking at the, I mean, obviously it's a huge, the huge success story of, of, of the last 12 months has been the number of vaccines which have worked. Just talking about those developed in the, in the West, uh, you've got yeah. BioNTech, Pfizer, but then more recently Johnson & Johnson, Novavax, etc. A, a, a range of efficacy rates. But one thing that's startling some people is that, of course, uh, this is lower for different variants, particularly the South African one at this moment. There may be more. Is there a genuine possibility that we get even pan-European herd immunity in, say, a year, 18 months? You can then see some internal tourism within, you know, 
the F the block plus the UK, Schengen plus UK, etc. Yes. But then there may be a new mutation which actually kind of renders not that moot, but it changes the dynamics quite significantly. How possible is that? And do you think government is preparing for it? Yes, I think that's actually a very possible scenario. Um, look, you, you get variants where you have high rates of transmission. If you, And it's no accident that the variants happened in South Africa and Brazil and the UK, where we've had raging epidemics. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if the next variant is in the United States, comes from the United States. So the more that we suppress these outbreaks, the less chance there is of a variant. But you're absolutely right. I think we do need to be focused on this phenomenon called zero COVID. We try and squeeze the virus out of our communities. We're never going to eradicate it like smallpox, but we can eliminate it so that it's not common in our communities. Once we've done that, and once we get to herd immunity, then we can go back to pretty much a, a, a normal life. I still think there's going to be um, a legacy of face masks, um, physical distancing in certain settings. We're going to be more aware of the importance of hand hygiene and respiratory hygiene, and that's not a bad thing, actually. Um, but I think, but that's going to take us two to three years to get to that point. I think where we where we're really in control of this be, because it's a global phenomenon. Um, so this is where you know. When Boris Johnson says we're going to have a review on February the 15th and maybe we can make some dramatic change to our uh, mandates, this is nonsense. He gave a March date out recently um, for schools. This is nonsense. Um, the, what we need to be doing is monitoring the rates of transmission in the community. And that's, that's the measure by which we judge whether we go back to normal or not. So you're saying the approach should be zero COVID. I mean, that's not something which is being advanced by the major political party at the moment, or, or, or for that matter, the SNP. But you think that's ultimately what we're going to have to move to? Absolutely, Aaron. Look, and, and I'm not basing this on a country like China, which has a more authoritarian government, and people will say, well, we can't do what China did. I'm basing it on what, they, what Australia did in Melbourne towards the end of last year. Um, when they had a raging outbreak in Melbourne, they pursued a strategy of zero COVID, which was a, a very intense lockdown, which reduced rates of transmission um, to very, very small numbers. And then they had a staged plan where when they got down to fewer than 20 cases per 100,000, they were then able to open up primary schools. When they got to a, another threshold, five per 100,000, then they could open up schools and universities. So that's the stage plan you need. So I, I, that's what we need to do. Now, we're a long way from that at the moment. The peak of transmission across the United, United Kingdom on average was around January the 4th, um, about 640 cases per 100,000. Right now, as of just a few days ago, we've got that down to below 300 cases per 100,000. So we've halved the rate of transmission in one month. If we can keep driving that rate of transmission down to just a handful of cases, then we've got zero COVID. And that's when we can start to open up again. I mean, it sounds from what you're saying that we're going to need a, effectively a sort of quasi-permanent apparatus to deal with test and trace, not just for this virus, but for future ones as well. Are you a bit concerned that that's not really part of the broader political debate at the moment? Nobody's really saying, 
okay, well, for the next year, two years, this is what we're going to need. And also for future challenges. Right now, all political parties are doing is talking about opening schools. Or when, as I asked you, when do we go back to normal? Is that, is that a concern for you in terms of the, the tenor of political debate in this country? It's so short term right now. Um, nobody is looking over the next six to 12 to 24 months about how we build a public health system with a test trace isolate facility, a national health system with the capacity to deal with new outbreaks. We're not having that national conversation. And there's another dimension to this, Aaron, if I, if I might mention Please. it. And that is that we're talking of this pandemic as if it's just the virus. Well, it, this pandemic is not just about the virus. The fact that it's people in more poorly paid jobs, Black, Asian, minority, ethnic communities, um, frontline workers who've been particularly affected, that's, that's, tell, that's evidence that's telling you something. And that is that this pandemic has exploited inequality. Societies that have deep inequalities are vulnerable societies. And any, any plan, any strategy for protecting our nation in the future has to put addressing inequality as one of those priorities. And I see nothing from this government about addressing inequality. One of the reasons why Britain has had one of the worst outcomes is because of the deep social and economic inequalities that we suffer. And unless we address inequality, we will not protect our communities from any future virus. I think two longer term questions then is, to what extent are we going to need a, effectively a global health guarantee, a sort of a baseline level of healthcare and vaccinations? I mean, it seems to me that slowly but surely we're entering this new era of, of, like you say, the zoonotic spillover, it's always happened, but now it's clearly accelerating, it's intensifying yeah. because of globalization. Are we going to need to start saying by the 2030s, 2040s, look, we're going to need public, generally speaking, free at the point of access healthcare across the world. And actually, that's, that's not, you know, that's in, a, that's, that's in everybody's rational self-interest for, you know, a, a, a rice farmer in, in Southeast China to have it or for you know, a banking executive in New York to have it. Actually, it's in the common interest for that basic level of healthcare and vaccinations and, and coverage to be there. Is that, is that an argument that we should now be making? That is absolutely the argument we should be making. You know, up until this pandemic, those of us who've worked in the health community have been ardent advocates for something called universal health coverage. Basically, that every country in the world should have the equivalent of the National Health Service. Um, care free at the point of demand. But as we've seen in the UK, having a great NHS, and it is a great NHS, wasn't good enough to protect us from a pandemic. And that's because you need, there's, a, there's another system, parallel system that you need in place, a public health system that gives you that global health security. And it's the ability to prevent, detect, and respond to a new viral threat. And we had a very weak public health system. The decade of austerity has stripped out capacity from our public health system, which is why we've ended up having to outsource, test, trace, isolate to the private sector, which incidentally is a long-term disaster. So we do need a strong NHS, but we need to securitize the NHS with the capacity of um, to prevent, detect, and, and, and respond to 
um, new viruses. So with that in mind, yes, that's what every country needs. And it's no good Britain being secure if you have another country that's insecure. And this is where it's in our interest to be part of a partnership uh, where we do get universal health coverage and global health security integrated in every country in the world. You write in the epilogue of the book, I'm just going to quote now, this is page 217, uh, and you write, the outcome of this new covenant between science and politics isn't yet clear. You're referring to the, the response of the last six months, really, I suppose. At one extreme, scientists could remain as servants of power with limited mandates. But those mandates could broaden and scientists or groups of scientists could assume a legitimacy in their role that might be hard for elected politicians to challenge. That sounds fantastic. I like the sound of that. However, I mean, the, 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 the response might be, that's what we already have with economists. And it's deeply dysfunctional, yeah. uh, the sort of elevation of science with, with, with policy. So moving forward, clearly this is going to massively disrupt the idea that politicians with absolutely no grasp of science should be at the wheel. I think that's, they've clearly, you know, Bolsonaro, Trump, Johnson, that's clearly been exposed. Yeah. How, how do you think that's going to manifest itself? Do you think any turn to technocracy might become more anti-democratic? Do you think the sort of the political models of East Asia, I'm thinking particularly China, People might say, well, actually, look, that's far better at dealing with existential crises. We've got climate change around the corner as well. How, how do you think mm. that might play out? Mm. Uh, so at moments of crises, I think the public and politicians do turn to scientists. Um, I am worried about the relationship between science and policy, though. I think there was a collusion during this pandemic where you saw uh, scientific advisors standing up in those press conferences every day next to government ministers defending the government. Um, I've mentioned already where you have advisors telling untruths to the public about our testing capacity, our being an international exemplar. I mean, what you had was science um, co-opted to protect the government. Now, that wasn't good. Um, the science should be rigorously independent of the, of the government. But I would welcome a stronger place for science at the heart of government, um, as long as we can hold that science accountable. The danger, of course, of slipping towards technocracy is you can't hold scientists accountable for their, for their views. Um, and when they become so integrated into politics, they become part of the political process and part of the political problem. So I want a strong independent science, and I want that strong independent science to be, in a sense, a foundation for social activism. Um, I do believe that science provides the most reliable knowledge for social change, for progressive social change. Um, but we need to, in a sense, activate the scientific community so that it sees itself in that progressive social role. Too often, science steps back from that role. And yet, to me, if you think, if you think about the, the birth of the Enlightenment 300 years ago, the whole purpose of the Enlightenment was to ignite social progress. And we mustn't forget that. The reason why the public invests money in science, in our universities, is because it needs to deliver a benefit back to society. So we should expect science to do so. And I hope that that's one of the lessons of this pandemic. I think that's not said nearly enough. You know, the belief in the scientific method, you know, it comes from a set of political commitments. People forget that. Exactly. Uh, absolutely. That's absolutely right. Exactly right. Final question. 
COVID-19, obviously, it's kind of catalyzed this broader conversation now about zoonotic spillover and pandemics and so on. I, I believe, I mean, you'll, you'll be able to confirm if this is right or wrong, there's more than a thousand distinct coronaviruses among the bat population, the planet's bat population, most of which is in Southeast Asia, suffering from deforestation, potentially can enter the food chain. Obviously, it's happened several times now. It'll almost certainly happen again. Yeah. Given the huge panoply of potential pathogens which could spill over, you know, do you think that ultimately pandemics, the threat of zoonotic spillover in the 21st century could be just as big a threat as, as climate change, as war? Do you think it's kind of just entered, you know, it's kind of come out of nowhere and now it's really top of the tree when it comes to existential threats to our species this century? And, you know... There's absolutely no guarantee that our species is going to continue for tens of thousands of years in the way that it's continued. We're just an animal like any other animal with the vulnerabilities that any other biological creature has. You go into our museums and they're full of ancient civilizations. Um, those civilizations felt solid and real at the time, but they disappeared. They died out. And there's absolutely no reason why our civilization isn't as vulnerable and couldn't die out. I think a pandemic threat is very, very likely, not nuclear war, um, but a pandemic threat is very likely to be the species ending event for Homo sapiens. Um, in the long term, climate, certainly. Um, but in the short to medium term, I'm afraid it's a pandemic. Uh, this particular pandemic has 10 times the mortality rate of influenza. But imagine if it was a virus which had 100 times the mortality rate of influenza, which is really quite possible. Um, then you're talking about something. So I think we need a little bit of, um, little bit of humility about our position on this planet. We're supposed to live in the Anthropocene, where the human is dominant. Well, we've seen that a tiny little virus has rendered the human being extremely vulnerable. Um, and that should be a moment for reflection. That's been a really, really fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate it. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support. Hello, I'm Nadia Idol, one of the hosts of the ACFM podcast on Navarra Media, the show which explores links between left-wing politics, culture and experiences of collective joy, interdispersed with soulful tunes to match. ACFM has just launched its own dedicated podcast feed, a home for every trip myself and co-hosts Jeremy Gilbert and Kia Milburn have been on so far whether on consciousness raising, the weird left, or the cosmic right. As well as every microdose episode, that is to say, a conversation with a special guest we've recorded so far. So make sure you've subscribed to the ACFM feed to keep up with every new episode. Just search for ACFM wherever you get your podcasts. Whoa, that's pretty far out.